You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 142 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm hot. Yes. <laughs> can, we, can we start with that? And we have hot. to start with that because pretty much every conversation in Australia at this point starts mm-hmm. with how hot is it? I know. So if you're overseas, if you're in the US or somewhere where it's really cold, then I'm feeling very much like I wish to be you right now. <laughs> um, but we are in the middle of a full-blown summer heat wave and the beach is beautiful, but it is hot. <laughs> yes. And I think that whoever invented air conditioning needs to win the Nobel Prize. For peace? For any, everything. <laughs> For everything. I think if we all lived in an air-conditioned world, we'd be much, we'd be much less hot-headed. I don't actually have air conditioning. How do you stay cool at night? Well, it's the same conversation we have every year when I talk about the fact that I don't have a heater. Remember, we do all that, and then I talk about my slanket. Well, in summer, yes. um, Well, look, I live in a really old house, and Mm. so it actually does tend to be quite. It stays quite cool for most of the day. Mm. Um, It's not too bad at all. We close it all up, and everybody sort of sits inside in the dark. Um, But the nights are that it is hot, and it's just your basic fan comes out, Val. Your basic fan. I heard that that you can also get, you know, like a spritzer, water spritzer, and spritz your sheets Mm -hmm. before you get in bed. And Don't you then, just get sweaty? Like no, damp? you just, just spritz them a little bit, but then you have the fan as well and it's kind of like air conditioning. Like pretend <laughs> air conditioning. I am not going to have pretend air conditioning. I'm tough. I'm an <laughs> Aussie. I'm an Aussie. I know how to do heat. Oh, I did last year without air conditioning and I thought I was going to die, so we installed it. <laughs> well, you know, the bizarre thing is I, if anyone's been following my social media, you'll know that I have just climbed the summit of Mount Kosciuszko, which yes. of course – the weirdest thing I've done in quite some time. Um, and it was great, but it's really cool up there. Um, <laughs> if you haven't been to the Snowy Mountains in January, I recommend it because it's fantastic. The hiking's fantastic. It's really cool. It's just, it was great. Like the boys were playing in the snow. Wow. That's yeah, there's fun. still like some leftover icy snow once you get right up near the top there. Oh, so wow. they were sliding down the snow in their board shorts. That's so cool. <laughs> oh, it's very fun. <laughs> All right. Now we want to give a shout out. Out to Johnny Treadgold, uh, who has left us a review on iTunes. Now, Johnny Great Treadgold. Name. Hello, Johnny Treadgold. Is such a good name. It's such a good. Should be a rock star. I think so. Johnny. Or an author. Or an author, yeah. Yes. I like rock star, but whatever. We can I go love with author. It. Johnny has <laughs> said, thank you for all the hard work. Your podcast is one of a select few I listen to every week. I've been writing a novel on and off for the past five years. And this week, I finally typed the 
end. Oh, yeah. Yes. Cheering. Yes. Parade. And it was an amazing feeling. And thanks to your insights, I'm all too aware that finishing the first draft is just the beginning. <laughs> Sorry about that, Johnny. <laughs> wow. Thank you so much, Johnny. And congratulations. And we can't wait to see your book come out because with a name like that, my Johnny God, sister winner. I reckon. I think Rockstar. I, th- I yeah, think we could totally. go for Rockstar. Yeah. Rock, cool. Rockstar, uh, rockstar author. author. Yeah. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Thank you so much, Johnny. Really appreciate you taking the time to do that. And if you do have, uh, everyone else, <laughs> um, a couple of minutes to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, we'd really be grateful because it certainly helps us in the rankings. It does. Now, shall we move on to the world of writing and publishing this week, Al? Let's do that. Because speaking of having a moment yes. to do helping with rankings yes. kind of stuff, yes. um, I am very excited this week to be one of five, count them, five Australian Writers Centre presenters who are in the running to become to be voted Australia's favourite author. There are five of us in the finals. It's so exciting. So A.L. Tate is there and she's very excited to be there. Go A.L. Tate. I know, go A.L. Tate. But we also have Kate Forsyth. We have Candace Fox. We have Pamela Hart and we have Natasha Lester. So if you have a moment, um, it would be fantastic if you popped over to the Booktopia website, to their blog and voted for your favourite Australian author. And I'm just going to put a little bit of sort of subliminal marketing in here. A.L. Tate, A.L. Tate, A.L. Tate. Was that subtle? Did you Definitely. like my Definitely. I have already gone and voted for A.L. Tate. I think that A.L. <laughs> Tate is awesome. So definitely go over and vote for A.L. Tate. And we will put <laughs> the link in the show author. notes or <laughs> the other fabulous Australian writers presenters. You can vote for all of us. That's the beautiful yeah. thing. It's a, it's a, you know, you don't just have to vote for one. You can vote for anyone. I was just really excited to be on the same list as Tim Winton. I'm, yes. you know, I, my day is made right there. But anyway. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Okay, that's all, right. that's all the subliminal marketing for today. Okay, no more subliminal marketing. Well, I can't speak today. A-L-T. Sub- A-L-T. Subliminal. <laughs> A-L-T. That's right. ALT. Okay, <laughs> so a little bit of scandal this week. Ooh, a yes. lot of good scandal. And, of course, the scandal is in from BuzzFeed News. <laughs> nothing to do with ALT. <laughs> no, nothing at all to do with ALT. But it is a link, which we'll put in the show notes, which, of course, you can find at uh, soyouwanttobeawriter.com.au. And the link says a plagiarism scandal just took down a top Trump appointee. Now, Monica Crowley was supposed to be a senior director of national security at the White House in the incoming administration. But it has been discovered that, uh, well, CNN revealed, basically, that she has plagiarised more than 50, that's five zero, segments of her book, which is called What the Bleep Just Happened. Now, the publisher is HarperCollins, and they have since pulled it from the shelves because, you know, it wasn't just one segment, not that that is an excuse. It was 50 segments, five zero segments. And um, it, uh, when that came to light after CNN reported it, a couple of days later, 
uh, Politico magazine reported that Monica Crowley actually plagiarised several passages of her Columbia University PhD dissertation, which was about um, politics. And, uh, yeah, she, she, she reportedly got them from other places like Foreign Affairs, Associated Press, CNN, you know, and other sources. Um, and CNN and Politico reported this uh, just not that long ago. So basically she was going to be working um, with, the, with Trump's national security advisor, but uh, now has decided to, um, you know, Focus not take her. up the role. Yeah, not take up the role. Mm. Goodness me, that's um, mm. that's fifty is a lot. Like you know, plagiarism is a funny thing. You can have a lot of stuff in your subconscious that you don't realise is there, and you might sort of like that. You might go very close to the wire in one, maybe one section, maybe I don't know, but fifty. Mm. That's a fairly deliberate. Um, Insane. Mm. If you are even remotely tempted to plagiarise, don't do it. No. At all, certainly not in books, certainly not in your PhD, or quite frankly, certainly not in anything. Not anywhere. No, it's a, it's a. Um, well, the the thing is also like it's the fact of the matter is that you know probably fifty years ago you might have got away with it, but you're not mm. going to get away with it ever now. No way. Not with the internet. No way. Yeah, no it's interesting. Way. Well, thanks well, for starting us out yeah. <laughs> you with a scandal there, Val. That's great. Well, something a little bit different then. Um, the Plain English Foundation, uh, they recently pr- published a list of the worst words of last year. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was kind of funny. Um, the winner of the worst words of 2016 is, are you ready? I am. Brangelexit. Oh, you're kidding. I have <laughs> never heard that word. I know what it is, but I have never heard. I'm assuming we're talking about the breakup of Brangelina. Yes, but it's a Franken word combining Brangelina mm, with Brexit. And Brexit. I get it. And the worst word for in terms of corporate spin, and I, this is just like hilarious. I don't know. I've just giggled about this all week. Is yeah. um, Samsung, <laughs> you might remember that their phones started catching fire to the point where yeah. you cannot bring those Samsungs on planes. Like you just cannot yeah. catch the plane with the Samsung. You have to, that particular model of Samsung, you have to leave it at home um, or, or not get on the plane. <laughs> just and, awkward, yeah. Yeah, because your phone actually catches fire. But Samsung called it a battery cell issue. <laughs> <laughs> just a, a little understatement right there. <laughs> Exactly. They said in their statement, in response to recently reported cases of the new Galaxy Note 7, we conducted a thorough investigation and found a battery cell issue. (laughs) Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Yep. (laughs) So, yeah, uh, that's certainly not a great one in terms of the plane. Okay, this is my least favourite one on the list. Yeah, go on. Cultural externalities. Oh my Do you goodness. know what a what cultural does, externality is? What's that even mean? It's a book. <laughs> so the product, the Productivity Commission, which you know is possibly my least favourite commission, commission <laughs> in the history of the world, <sighs> their report on the publishing industry talked a lot about cultural externalities, oh. which we used to call books and which are actually really important and which they're trying to talk down. So I say bring back books. Oh, my God, isn't that insane? That's just insane. Insane. 
Oh, but what a great list. Definitely that is a good a list. Look. Yes, we will put that in the show notes. Now, the next link we have, it's um, since it is still January, it is the start of the year, mm-hmm. and a lot of people haven't, you know, oh, got their head back into gear yet in terms of work mm-hmm. because they are still relaxing, which is fantastic. And if you're relaxing listening to this by the beach, good on you. Keep beaching. Yes. That's fantastic. I hope you're cool. Yeah, we hope you're cool. Just take, take a dip. But if you are starting to think about your writing for this year, then this post is called 11 Writing Tips to Help You Get More Done in 2017. And it's from a website called Bustle. And I thought it was kind of good because it lists a couple of things that I think are useful. Some are really obvious, like, you know, sleep. (laughs) Oh, yes. That's always good. Others, like the first one, number one, give yourself a reasonable daily minimum or it could be a weekly minimum, whatever you want, but some kind of target. And I think a target is good, but it also has to be reasonable because when you have that target, you actually bother to try and reach it. And one of the things that we've discovered in your wonderful course, Make Time to Write, and part of that course is this 30-day writing boot camp where when you're ready, you press the button on this 30-day writing boot camp. And no, it's not quite Alison yelling at you for 30 days as if you're you know, in a boot camp, but you do have something to do every day, a word count to reach every day. And the way Alison has structured it has been really, really clever because it's all extremely doable. And the feedback that we have been getting from people who have been emailing us is that they are amazed at how much they've been able to write as a result of a 30-day writing boot camp. Now hooray. That, yeah, hooray. And at the end of the 30-day writing boot camp, you're guaranteed to get um, 10,000 words. But people are emailing us saying, I'm not even finished the boot camp. I've done 26,000 words. It just really gets me into the habit. So what you do need to give yourself and what that boot camp has certainly taught us is to give yourself a reasonable, so not a really ridiculous, daily or weekly minimum. And yes. I think daily is a good idea because then you get into that habit. Otherwise, what happens if you give yourself a weekly minimum, unless you're really motivated, you get to Sunday or whatever, you go, oh, my God, I've got to write 5,000 words. Yeah, no. It's a, it needs to be – it, it, if not every day, five days a week. Like you don't have to write on weekends. You don't like. It's just. It needs to be something that you can. It's like anything. It's like losing weight. It's like starting an yeah. exercise program. It has to be sustainable. And for it to be sustainable, you can't make it so difficult for yourself that you give up after the first week. So you need to set yourself a minimum that's manageable. Two hundred words a day is a really manageable thing. And what happens is it's a great way to trick yourself into starting because you sit down to write your two hundred, and that's essentially two paragraphs. Like at the end of the day. Um, and you will find that because you're sitting there, you'll probably write more. But yeah. if you only get 200, well, then you've done 200 for the day and your uh, work in progress is going to move forward just that little bit. There's another approach that I like too, and I've joined a Facebook group, which, I, um, which I'm loving, and it's called the 10 Minute Novelists. And it's oh. based on a book by a, a writer, a US writer called Catherine Grubb, and she wrote a book called Writing a Novel in 10 Minutes a Day, which sounds insane. Mm. But the fact of the matter is that if you go to US, if you say, to yourself, I've got 10 minutes here. I'm, I'm doing whatever I'm doing. Like you might be at the beach. You might be, you know, I don't know what you're doing. Uh, 
10 minutes is, is not a very long period of time. Mm. In 10 minutes, you can probably knock out a paragraph or two and you probably get your 200 words. And it's it's just a different way of looking at it. You, you, you basically, it's like everything that we do that's good for us, we almost have to trick ourselves into doing it, even though we know it's good for us. So whatever <laughs> it takes to get your mindset going into oh, 10 minutes, I can do 10 minutes, anyone can do 10 minutes or 200 words or whatever it is it's going to be. Um, and then you, you sit down and you do that and, and you'd be amazed at how much you achieve because it adds up. It's like drip, drip, drip. A dollar a day adds up to 365 by the end of the year. You know, so it's a little bit, a little bit, a little bit rather than thinking I've got to blast out 5,000 words by Wednesday. Absolutely. The other point that I really like in this list is give yourself permission to write badly. And I think that's Mm. so incredibly important because if you sit there thinking that every word that you are about to write has to be gold, the pressure is just ridiculous. And it won't be gold anyway, let's face it. So absolutely give yourself permission to write badly because out of the crap that sometimes comes out, does come gold as well. But the gold will only come out if you allow the rubbish to come out as well. That's exactly right. I think all of those things are important. It's funny because I sent out my newsletter, my monthly newsletter today, and I wrote a little um, a little post in that newsletter that's called um, How to Write When You Don't Feel Like Writing because at this time of the year, I find it really hard to get myself into a writing headspace. I had a massive year last year and I'm really tired and I've got kids around me all day and it's hot and I'd rather be at the beach and, you know, all of those things. So... Um, what do I do? Like, how do I get myself through that to at least get some things done, you know, towards, uh, you know, to, towards a manuscript, towards whatever I'm doing. The first thing I do is I give myself permission to take time off. Um, mm. I think sometimes when you're trying to, uh, to work towards something, you have this, you know, there's this insane need and then you feel terrible about yourself if you don't actually do it every day. It's like having a homework that you didn't get to and you feel like you've got to hand it in on Monday and it's not going to happen. Um, so I actually do give myself a permission to take time off because I, I find that if I don't feel like I have to be writing, that I often feel more like writing. So it's. How, it's I a, have a question with that. It might be a dumb yeah. question, but how do you actually give yourself permission to have that time off? Or do you, what do you, do you do? Do you have any kind of ritual? Do you have a thought process you go through? Or what? I finish something. So if if I'm well, if I'm working on if I am working on something, if I've got something on the go at the time. I, I finish it, okay? So I don't I don't tend to take time off in the middle of a project of any right. kind. I wait till the end and then I go, it's done. I can take a deep breath and I can give myself some time off now. I'm going to have at least two weeks. And, and that's what I've had. Oh. Pretty much had two or three weeks now where I've done nothing because I just needed to do nothing. Yes. What I have done is I've read a lot. So yeah. if I'm not writing, then I'm reading a lot. So I've read four or five novels and a couple of bios since Christmas. Um, and mm. what I also have done is what I do is I like here I am doing the social media for the Writer Centre. I'm getting together links every week for our for our program. I have got that many links bookmarked in my life that I have been intending to get to read mm. that I haven't actually read. So I go through and I tick all those off. I read through those. And that's really inspiring because you're going to learn something you know, there's always something new to learn and that will often um, inspire you to sit down when you don't feel like writing and start writing. And the other key, and this is really, really important, Mm. is that when the time comes and I don't feel like writing but I'm thinking to myself, I've really got to start getting back into this, what am I going to do? I start 
And this is where the, I don't wait for the muse. I don't wait for, you know, the, yes. the stars in alignment. I just think, okay, I'm just going to sit down and write down that one idea that I had on a, on my walk with Procrastipop the other day. Yep. And I do that. And it's just that because the starting is the hardest part. Mm. Once you sit down and you're away, then you remember that you actually really like writing. So I have a question with that. When you're on the walk with Procrastipop and the idea comes into your head, do you stop mm. and write it down? Or do no. you trust yourself to remember it? Because I wouldn't remember. I just, I just, just you, like, I, you, you kind of got to trust, you've got to trust your subconscious. You've got to trust that if it's that good, it's going to come back. You know what I'm saying? So mm. what I'll do is I'll walk, I'll try and think through as much of the idea as I possibly can. And then, I mean, because, you know, Procrastia Pup being a Border Collie is not a fan of this stop start walk. We no. just pretty much have to go. Yeah. Um, so that's what we do. We walk and we walk. And when I come back, I'll just jot down, you know, I'll open, I've got a Word document where I keep ideas and I'll just jot down a few sentences. Um, and then if that idea stays with me, if I keep thinking about it, then I'll go back to that and maybe start sort of thinking about outlining some characters or a, or a, um, a plot or, you know, something. I'll, I'll have a little starting point with that. And then once I'm happy mm-hmm. that I've got an idea of what the idea really is, that's when I go... Right. You know what a friend of mine does? She, um, this is a cat. Hi, cat, if you're listening. She has, she has a cassette recorder, like an actual cassette recorder uh, that she carries everywhere with her. And you see her every so often just take it out of her handbag and press record. So you actually have to press buttons, actual buttons that go down (laughs) as opposed to, you know, a touchscreen. And, uh, says blah, 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 blah. She just talks her idea into her cassette recorder and um, then when she gets back to her desk, she listens to all of the ideas that she's put down on her cassette recorder. But, of course, sometimes she actually needs to buy more cassettes, right? And they're not hard to come by. <laughs> so she has to go – They're not easy to come by. Yeah. I mean, sorry, they're not yeah. easy to come by. So she has to go searching for cassettes because she just loves that process of recording it onto a cassette still. That's really interesting because I I don't think that would work for me because it's not really – I don't actually know what I'm thinking until I write it down. Mm. So I don't think that actually just recording – I think it's sort of I need that cogitation and I, it, it then needs to come out my fingers. It, it all seems to yes, sort of distill yes. and come out my fingers as opposed – so I've just got that direct line that goes from my sort of imagination, my subconscious writing brain straight through to the keyboard. Yeah. And that that's – you know, we all work in different ways, I think. But I do like the idea of the tape deck. (laughs) When she first pulled it out, I just couldn't stop staring. I was just like, are you for real? (laughs) Anyway, let's move on to our giveaway. This is your last chance, everyone, to win one of five packs of the Girl on the Train book and DVD. So entries close on the 23rd of January. So you've got a little bit more time and you can enter at writerscentercomau slash win. So that is writerscentercomau slash win. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you'd like to write fiction for kids and teens, our five-week online course in writing books for children and young adults will help you get there faster. Find your voice, create characters, dialogue and plots to fit your age group and write compelling stories that young readers will love, 
all in a couple of hours a week. You'll also enjoy the convenience of learning from anywhere and get your very own tutor providing personal feedback on your writing. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash WBC. All right, Al, are we ready for the word of the week? I'm so ready. So ready. I have to say that you did cause quite a stir with your word of the week from a few weeks ago. (laughs) Shall we not talk about that ever? The one starting with F that isn't a rude word. That isn't fascinate. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And isn't a curse word. (laughs) Let's go forward, shall we? All right. I loved that word. That was so good. Um, That was from... uh, for anyone who wanted, wants to look it up, that was from episode 140, mm-hmm. my word of the week, starting with F, four letters but not a curse word. Okay, so <laughs> this week's word of the week is ataraxia. That's Ooh. A-T-A-R-A-X-I-A. Atarex, oh, sorry, ataraxia. <laughs> I can't say it. Rexia. Ataraxia. Do you know what it is? No, but it sounds like kind of, I don't know, some kind of phobia maybe or something. I don't know what it is. You tell me, Val. I'm ready to hear it. I'm ready to be enlightened. Yeah, it's more positive actually. Now, to me, it sounds like a planet from a sci-fi novel. But Hmm. uh, according to the Macquarie Dictionary, it means a state of tranquility free from emotional disturbance and anxiety. Hmm. So you might say something like people who meditate regularly hope to reach a state of ataraxia. Yeah. Hmm. Or some people. Reaching that state. Sorry? I wouldn't mind reaching that state. My question then is at what point do you feel most like you have reached ataraxia? God, I have no idea. Probably while I'm asleep. (laughs) I don't think I ever get there. I don't think a state of tranquility is not really my natural place to be yeah, ever. But, you know, Do you have some one? People have, have you a got a state of tranquility? Well, I love Sunday afternoons when I'm not doing anything and I've got the air conditioning on, watching my favourite TV show and I've got the pets falling asleep cuddling me. That is kind of ataraxia for me. Okay. Yeah, I don't have one of those. <laughs> okay. I don't think I do that. I don't have a state of tranquility. It's always kind of, yeah, now I'm go, sad. Go, go, go. <laughs> Don't I'm going to go and work on it because, you know, right. I tried yoga to get to a state of tranquility oh. and it just made me cranky. So I can't even do that. So how long did you do it for? Because I'm oh, – oh, 10 always, weeks. You did it for 10 weeks. You lasted that long. I did 10 painful weeks thinking that at some point the calm blue ocean moment would come up upon me and it did not. No, it doesn't make me calm either. It makes me cranky <laughs> too. So there you go. Clearly we're a similar type. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh. I suggest oh I suggest air conditioning, favourite shows, and pets cuddling. Okay, I'll get, give it a whirl. <laughs> Shall we move on? Oh, to let's. Our writer Please. in residence this week. Okay, who have you got for us? Okay, well, this week's writer in residence talked to us all the way from LA. His mm. book, who which has taken the world by storm, is called "I Hate the Internet." And of course, <laughs> as soon as I saw this, the title of this book, I was curious and I needed to find out more about it. Mm-hmm. And um, so I spoke to Jarrett Kobeck, and he's an American writer living in uh, LA, but his book is set in San Francisco. He has published a novella before called Atta, and this one is um, a full-length novel. I hate the 
internet. And interestingly, when he was trying to get this published, um, he, he got a lot of rejection. So he founded his own small press. But oh. since publishing it about a year or so ago, like early in 2016, it has become very successful. It's now published in seven languages, publishers from all over the world, including Australia and, and the UK, and, and it's also been translated, um, have discovered it. And, and, you know, when I first started reading it, I must admit, I was like, oh, this is different. It's satire. And the, the, the writing style is very different to what I'm used to, but it really does work. And it's really, really clever and it is laugh out loud funny. And it's just, it's just a, it's a very different, but it, it's a really good novel. Really good. So I hate the internet. Let's have a chat to Jarrett Kobeck. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jarrett. Thanks for having me. Now you're currently talking to me and where are you? I'm in Los Angeles. Which is where you live, right? Yeah, I live in LA. Now, your book is, is I Hate the Internet. It's set in San Francisco. For those readers who haven't read the book yet, can you tell us what it's about? Sure. Um, I mean, it is a novel set in San Francisco in 2013, and it is primarily about the travails of a woman who's a comic book artist of some renown who uh, finds herself in the middle of a viral media uh, public shaming, for, la for lack of a better term. And uh, what it ends up being is sort of this meditation on all of the people in the Bay Area, in the San Francisco Bay Area, who are the losers of the tech boom. And beyond, and beyond that, I think what people have really been responding to in it is it is a very crude book about uh, perceived wrongs in the internet that, mm. use, that uses the language of the internet to critique the internet. So there's an argument that can be made that about 50 to 65% of the book is nonfiction um, and is just sort of an analysis of how the internet works in the crudest possible terms. Now, how in the world did this idea for this book form, how did you start thinking, I'm going to write, did you start thinking I'm going to write a novel about this or I'm going to make a statement about, you know, the state uh, of the internet? No, no. Um, I, I wanted to write a novel about San Francisco because I had been living there for a few years and was very much one of the losers in the tech boom um, and ended up getting gentrified, getting gentrified out of uh, San Francisco and you know, it, it was an extraordinarily difficult and painful process. And when I finally got to L.A., which I'd lived in before, I uh, decided to, to try to write about it. Unbeknownst to me, I had been <laughs> I had had something of like a nervous breakdown during this process. So when I actually sat down to work on the book, it came out in a very strange manner. It came out in this really jagged, sort of crude, not especially novelistic content uh, or, or, or form, rather. And I um, realized really quickly that 
actually this was probably the right way to write about the internet because it mirrors the way that information comes to you on the internet. Um, so it's, it's like, you know, if you're looking at Wikipedia and you're on an article about Frank Sinatra, somehow 15 minutes later, you've read 20 articles and they're about you and you find yourself at the end reading something about climate change and there's (laughs) no, there's no conscious understanding of what this process was and how you wasted all of this time. That's sort of what the book ended up being like. And I was like, well, this seems, this seems like something I should run with. Um, so what, what originally started as sort of my mental incapacity to write a normal book then became, uh, what I think most people now identify as, as I hate the internet signal virtue. Yes. And when you first started it then, what did you merely start with a premise and start writing and then you and then this this voice, this really amazing unique voice emerged or did you have some semblance of a plot or you know well, no one happen? <laughs> no, no no one has accused the book of having a plot. So <laughs> Um, no, I mean, I had a few things that I wanted to get in there and a few things that a few moments that occur in the book, but it wasn't particularly thought out. Um, I had been thinking in terms of the voice, I had been thinking a lot about stand up comedy, um, because there's, there's an argument to be made that you can go and see the world's worst stand up. And in their five-minute set, they will touch on a series of really complex social issues that novels often seem – that novels that are being published by the, the big four in America often now seem to be avoiding. And so it's, it's – it was sort of this idea of like, well, maybe the book can be funny. You know, maybe, maybe it can have this really crude voice and, you know, be a little bit more like stand-up than um, – uh, than, than a novel. But beyond that, no, it really just sort of came out. Um, it took about, you know, the first draft took about two months to write and is not that far from what the final book was. Um, I think I was, I mean, to go back to my original point, I think I was really disturbed by the experience in San Francisco and, you know, mm-hmm. something, something in that trauma animated this book in a way that other things that I've written in the past have not had the same quick genesis. Mm -mm. And now you talk about uh, stand-up comedy. Have you had experience in stand-up comedy in in any way? No, I hate (laughs) stand-up. I find find it awful, but I do, I do think it's really strange that, um, you know, what is viewed as sort of a light entertainment or an evening out, you really can go into this dark room and people will be talking about really heavy and complex social issues. And that the novel, which in the US is sort of, you know, the serious literary novel has become this, this thing which often avoids these topics. Mm. I think that's interesting how you say that what came out was kind of this jagged um 
um, style and, and it it is a very unique style and it is, I, I, the word jagged didn't come to mind when I was reading it, but I can totally see it now, but it works so well. And Thank you. It, it, is, it is really different and it is very different from Renault's, but it really, really does work. And I laughed out loud constantly um, reading this book in, in many sections and I'm always in awe of people who can write with humour, but it almost sounds like you... Um, it's uh, like... Are you naturally humorous yourself or was it an effort to put that humor on the page or did it just come naturally well i i mean i should say too that in addition to stand-up comedy i'd been thinking a lot about kurt vonnegut and Mm -hmm. so if there is someone if there's another writer whose thumbprint you can really see on this book it would be hopefully the better novels of vonnegut um Mm -hmm. you know there was a there was a sort of conscious effort at learning how to be funny. Cause I mean, I think I can be funny conversationally, but being funny conversationally and being funny in such a way where you can sustain it across mm. a 270 page book mm. are ve- are very different things. And so I, I did put some effort into learning how to write jokes essentially and learning the, the mechanics of humor. But that, a lot of that actually predated even realizing it would be used in this book. I had just been thinking a lot about humor and it's, you know, it's ability to get things over that you may not be able to get over if you're writing serious work. How did you research or study how to write jokes? Uh, I mean, there's books you can buy that are that are for the 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 aspiring stand up, and I, I read a few of them. And then, I mean, also just one of the things that is that we do now have the luxury of is YouTube is awash with uh, stand up comedy, mm. and you can really, if you really look at what people are doing, it's not that hard to pick up. Um, and then, I don't know, there's also this British uh, stand-up named Stuart Lee who wrote a really interesting book about, uh, you know, he had originally been sort of like a wonder boy in the, in the 90s and then kind of fell off the spotlight and then in the early 2000s realized that he was about to starve to death and he should probably go back to stand up and figure out how to make it pay. And he wrote a really, really wonderful book called How I Escaped My Certain Fate. And if you pay attention to that book, you can learn a lot about humor and a lot about how stand up and, and, and writing jokes actually works. Great. So when did you know that you wanted to be a writer? Like, was it something that you were interested in when you were very young or did you come yeah. later? No, I was, I was always really interested in it. I had a, a, a woefully misspent youth reading a lot of science fiction <laughs> and I, and I thought that um, I was I was delusional enough to be like, well, I could be a science fiction writer. And then, you know, the idea never really left me, but I, I was terrible at it. Um, I mean, I was really, really bad at writing until about 10 years ago when I first moved to California 
And I moved to Los Angeles first and then San Francisco and now back to L.A. But one of the virtues of being in Los Angeles is that it is an enormously isolating and alienating city. Um, And so it gave me time to write and time to figure out how to do it. And very shortly after I got here, I I found myself actually producing um, serious publishable work Mm. and I I mean I don't fully understand the alchemy of that process but I I credit Los Angeles almost entirely for it yeah which is which is you know I had this um after this book after I hate the internet came out I sort of have been getting um sucked into more literary scenes than I had been before and one of the things that I one of the things that's been really interesting is um, like I knew there were small press people in LA cause it's like 500 people and we all hate each other. And I knew, and I knew that there was um, like celebrities who could get book deals. I didn't realize there was a mid tier of established literary writers and to a person, all of them are people who went to New York made their name and then came back or moved to LA. I'm about the only one in the city who actually has managed and, and quite by accident managed to get established on that level, being a writer in LA and, and, mm. and coming out of LA. Cause I don't think there's a lot of, there's just not a hit. There's not a tradition of that kind of writing. And so it's, yeah. it's hard to get over. So can you just give, listeners just a bit of a potted history of your career up until this point so they they can just see what you've been doing sure had this success um, well i did a i did a few small press books um none of which were really novel length prior to i hate the internet and um probably the most and actually by far the most successful of those books is a book called Otta, which was on semi-text and which was about the lead hijacker on 9-11 um and that book came out in 2011 and it had a very weird experience a very weird history where um it came out and it did okay and then it died completely i think in the second year of its publication um you know, it probably sold 50 books. And then in the third year of its publication, it started to get picked up by academics. And one academic in particular, this this guy named John Duvall, who teaches at Purdue University in Indiana, really started pushing the book. And so then by the fourth year, a lot of professors had started assigning it as classroom literature. And so then the book started really getting momentum and, and now I think has, you know, has gone into three or four editions and is really (laughs) particularly by the standards of the small press, a really successful book. Um, the thing that's really, that was really frustrating is that because this process was so weird and drawn out and so unusual, there was absolutely no recognition for it. Um, so when I Hate the Internet was finished and I was trying to get it published, I, I couldn't get it published. I could not get anyone to publish the book. 
um, agents were rejecting me, presses were rejecting me, small presses, which had been my home prior to this, Mm -hmm. had also been rejecting me. So what I eventually ended up having to do was found my own press. We heard you like books and more or less give or take self-publish. I hate Mm -hmm. the internet. Um, And it completely... You know, I mean, I had been around the small press enough that I knew how to do that in such a way where it wouldn't be hugely embarrassing. Um, And then, you know, I Hate the Internet came out. It was the first book on the press. Mm -hmm. And it just almost immediately went insane Mm -hmm. and has just not stopped. I mean, it's it's um, I think the book just came out in Australia like a couple of months ago, but it's been happening for a year here and it just keeps going and it's really unexpected it's confounding isn't it because it's such a good book and it's amazing that people still reject (laughs) things like this How, how did you have that did you always just you know as writers we are plagued with self doubts all the time did you have that confidence in this book from the get-go? Did you know that this was going to work and therefore you just kept on going as opposed to uh, sticking it in the bottom drawer? I I actually have to say my confidence was not in the book itself, although I did think to me it read like the best thing that I had done in some ways. But, I, you know, it's hard to have perspective on your own work. Yeah, yeah. The confidence that I had was in the title. And I felt like you, I still feel like you could, you could print a blank book called I hate the internet and sell a couple of thousand copies because people have such a social ambiguity about the internet and have such a serious concerns that even just as an object, people would have that people would have a blank book with a giant, I hate the internet on the title or on the cover, rather, I'm sorry, would probably move about 3,000 units, you know, just as, an, <laughs> just as a novelty item. So to me, when I was getting rejected, I was just like, this is insane mm. because you don't even need the text. You just can have the title <laughs> and the book will move. Now, I've been, I should say, I've been really fortunate because people have responded really strongly to the text and that's mm. carried it beyond that initial push. But I think the initial push was just almost as like a novelty item, right? you know, and, so, you know, <laughs> yeah. Go, so. go on. Yeah. No, I, I just was mumbling. So, <laughs> so um, you said that it took you two months for that first draft. Right. Um, so can you just give us an idea of in that two months, was it, you know, all consuming, I'm going to wake up, I'm going to write. X number thousand words. Did you have some kind of structure or goal, word count goal, or you know, yeah. plan? Um, I do a thousand words a day when oh. I'm writing, every single day. And on the end, if it hasn't turned out that to be a thousand words, then I just I kind of feel terrible about myself. <laughs> um, and that, and I mean, that was it—just a thousand words a day, um, and then. Some days you get lucky and you find yourself writing two or 3,000 words. And that sort of happened with this book. I think the word count on the, on the published book is about 72,000 words. And, you know, I started it on March 
30th, I think 2014 and then finished it on, finished the first draft on June 1st. And yeah. And I mean, just grinding it out and then, you know, and then I did have the luxury of because so many people kept rejecting the book, I had more time to go through and make changes. And then because I, like I said, I also was primarily pushing it on the editorial side with my own press. Um, I was able to be making changes up until a very late period that could not have happened on another press. Then what happened after it came out and it, um, it, it met with a really good reception? I, it, so in the States it's published by someone else now? No, I'm still publishing it. I'm still doing it. I'm still doing it. I I like the luxury of having control. And I mean, it's been, it's been okay. I mean, there, you know, you, this is really nitty gritty, but you get into, you find yourself, if you do decide to do this seriously, Mm. you find yourself concerned with things that you never thought you would be concerned with. But, um, but no, the book continues to do well in the U S it had, a surprising critical response. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, uh, very shortly thereafter, I started to get approached by foreign publishers. And at that point, that was the moment where I realized I couldn't do this on my own anymore. Like everything up to that point, I felt like I could handle, but negotiating foreign contracts, how how do you do that? So Mm -hmm. I, I was able to find an agent and they have been very, very good about getting foreign editions and, and getting contracts for foreign editions. Mm. So it has now either been published or is scheduled to be published in seven languages. Fantastic. So in Australia, it's through Alan and Unwin. In the UK, it's by Serpent's Tale. Now, the interesting thing about I'm I'm holding the UK edition, yes, um, which has a very interesting note at the front, and of course, um, there are certain bits of the book that are redacted, and then you've got these this message in brackets: "Jim will fix it." <laughs> right. Now, can you just give readers an idea of why this has occurred? Yeah, um, libel law in the UK and in uh, the Commonwealth is very different than everywhere else in the world. Um, In the US, if someone sues you for libel, uh, it's up to them to prove the case. In the UK, under UK common law, if someone sues you for libel, you as the defendant have to prove that you didn't do it. Mm -hmm. And because the book has references to a lot of real world people, um, who are entirely fictitious in the text, I should add. Um, the Serpent's Tale was very concerned that we would end up getting sued. And so they originally had asked me to just take some stuff out. And I was like, well, let's not do that. Um, I had read the UK edition of Mike Tyson's autobiography somehow which I still don't understand how I ended up with that. But there's a really, there's a really interesting part in it where he's talking about some stuff and he's like, you know, sorry, I can't, uh, I can't actually talk about this in the UK edition. And I thought that was a really interesting response to make 
these real world concerns become part of the text itself and become sort of an enhanced edition rather than what Serpent's Tale had originally asked for, which was to remove stuff from the text and delete stuff from the text. Mm. Uh, and so then it, you know, then I came up with this really elaborate Jimmy Savile joke um, that anchors that anchors this. But I mean, it, there is a certain truth to that too, because Savile is the main offender in terms of this was a person who hid in plain sight entirely through the threat of suing people under libel law. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's why the UK edition and the, and the Australian edition is mm. a little bit different. I actually prefer that edition. I think it adds to it enormously. I think it's just such a great layering because as you're reading it, of course, you're also thinking, Oh, I wonder what it was. <laughs> and you, you've drawn your own conclusions and you, then you start, of course, researching on the internet, right? Yeah. And <laughs> it's, it's funny because it's all very mild, the stuff yeah. that they, the stuff that they asked to, to change, mm. I think there's probably stuff in there that's far worse that they didn't seem <laughs> to have a problem with. So, um, Are you working on something else now? Yeah, I am working on a few things that are in different stages of completion. I have um, a novel coming out in the U.S. on Viking um, in August, which is a book about uh, the club scene in New York in the 80s and the 90s and, and a bunch of other things. And I'm also writing another book now, but I'm not telling anyone what that is until it's done. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I'm still working, still, so still. I'm going. curious to know about the book that's coming out in August about the club scene. Um, yeah. Is that, does it have a similar voice to this? No, it's completely different. Really? Um, it's, it's actually a prequel to I Hate the Internet that I wrote before I Hate the Internet. And oh. Uh, it was not intentional that it was going to be a prequel, but then when I started writing I Hate the Internet, I was too lazy to invent new characters. I had written <laughs> this giant – it's a really big book. It's, a, it's about 150,000 words, and I had written this book about – uh, two characters who are just moving through New York in the 80s and the 90s. And um, and I really thought, like, these were strong characters. And this was something that, because I had this huge backstory for all of them, it would probably make writing a novel as jagged as I Hate the Internet much easier. Because it, mm. you, I didn't have to... Envision this entire biography of these characters. It already was there. It was in a manuscript that, again, actually another manuscript that no one wanted to publish. Um, and now they do. So that's <laughs> so. It, I'm yes. going to be so curious to read it because um, I think that it'll be fascinating to see the style that you take with that one. So uh, hopefully it comes out in Australia around the same time. What do you? Um, what do you enjoy most about writing? Um, there are moments in the process where there are unexpected discoveries and that will send you down a tangent that will make what you're doing so much and make the book itself so much better. That, that to me is probably 
the best thing about doing it, the, the unexpected discoveries, because so much of it is just, you know, particularly if you're doing fiction, so much mm. of that is just construction you know like the the old the stereotype of the man went into the room unfortunately you have to do that stuff but mm. when you do that well enough or when you do that and it gives you a, a base to then sort of have the unexpected discoveries that's the stuff that i that i find keeps me interested and what do you think was the most um rewarding part of writing i hate the internet I would say the reception, actually, because yeah. the 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 fact that the book came out in the way that it did and the fact and I mean, both in terms of the way that it reads, but also that it was a book that no one wanted to publish, which has since, you know, it has turned into this thing. And it's been an interesting process to live with because it. It's been uncomfortable in some ways, but by and large, something about having done it entirely on my own, really, and then having everyone be like, no, it's, this is embarrassing or whatever their motivations were, mm -hmm. then seeing that thing go out into the world and see the world responding to it has been really rewarding and really interesting because mm -hmm. there's, um, you know, there's... I don't think it could work with every book by any means. And I think this one ended up not really intentionally being a book that it could work with. But you do start to wonder about the things that people are saying to you when they're rejecting your work or when mm -hmm. people are like, well, I don't really see this. And you're like, well, I think this should work. Why wouldn't this work? Um, mm. to, then, to then see that go out and actually work better than anything I've done in the past has really been rewarding. Yeah, I bet. What was the most challenging part of the writing of it? I know that there's probably challenges with, you know, publishing it yourself mm -hmm. and that sort of thing, but the actual writing, what was the most challenging part of it? That's a good question. I, I would say that figuring out how to have that style while also maintaining a book that is going to an end point because there's there's a way where you could just write digression after digression after digression after digression mm -hmm. and find yourself uh, two years later with a hundred or with a with like a a million word long manuscript that goes mm -hmm. absolutely nowhere mm -hmm. um that is probably the hardest part, just figuring out how to how much of that you could do without getting off track and how much how much you could do, how you know, like where the elasticity was. It was always a judgment call. And, you know, I, th I think I mostly managed it. There's a few places where the book goes way off track, but mm -hmm. basically it gets it gets where it's going. And I, and mm -hmm. I think that was the hardest part. Was it uh, did you feel that? you were taking a big risk writing in the style that you did? Uh, no, because no one was paying attention to me. You know, <laughs> I, I, I had no, I, I wasn't risking anything. There was no gamble. I didn't have anything to lose. I had a book yeah. that um, academics were teaching in a couple of courses in, across the U.S. But other than that, no. I mean, I thought maybe 
you know, people would be really upset by the book if it came out and maybe that would be unpleasant. But even that really was a very minor concern. Wonderful. Um, and what's your advice to aspiring writers who, you know, they haven't had their first novel published yet. They haven't, they're still getting the rejections um, or maybe they they haven't even finished. What's your advice to, to them who hope to be in a position like you one day? Right. Well, I think, you know, I think there's, there's two things. If it's still not done, the really, you have to just do the work and it yeah. is work, you know, it is not an easy thing to do a thousand words a day or however many words a day to just get to the, to the point where it's completed in terms of people saying no, in terms of getting rejections, I mm -hmm. think, um, I, I, I have had a little bit more experience in the last couple of months dealing with the editorial side of this stuff. Um, and I can say, you know, don't listen to people because no one actually knows what publishing is. Writing is one thing. Publishing is a completely different thing. And the two have some relationship, but the people who are running publishing have absolutely no idea what, what's going to work and what isn't. And it's sort of just the process of hopefully trying to find the one person or the handful of people who actually can see that thing and can see an end point with the manuscript. But that's mm -hmm. not easy. It's not easy to find those people. You know, so you have to just keep going. All it is is perseverance. Yeah, absolutely. And on that note, thank you so much for your time today, Jarrett. Thanks for having me. There you go. That was Jarrett Kobeck. That's pretty amazing. And I mean, and sort of like going out of his way to found his own small press, I like know. rather than just sort of like you know, doing the indie author thing and publishing just himself. He's founded a whole business. Brave, I think. Very brave. Yeah, yeah. good on him. And, yeah. and it, you know, fortunately uh, for Jared, obviously it worked, but it's good to that he had the faith, I guess, in, in mm -hmm. the book and in the title that he, he was mentioning um, to, to go ahead and do it because obviously now it's translated into so many languages and a success in other countries and um, really, really works. Mm -hmm. All right. So shall we move on to our app pick for the week? Let's do that, Valerie. Now, this is this just made me laugh, and so I had to mention it. But it is only available to people in the US. So, for our US listeners, this is something for you. Now, I hope somebody develops something for Australian phone numbers. It's called Nagbot.io. <laughs> As in nag, as in when you nag someone, bot. So it's a bot that nags you. Um, oh, nag just what we need. Yeah, nagbot. Like, seriously? Dot .io. <laughs> and when you go to it, it says, I'm nagbot and I'm here to nag. So it says, I'll regularly text you asking you whether you did something and keep track of your answers. <laughs> I'm free to use and allow one nag per phone number. So you click on, when you go to it, you click on create a nag and it <laughs> asks you, you know, your name and your phone number so it can text you, obviously. And then you can say, what question do you want me to ask? <laughs> As in, you know, have you written 500 words today, right? I was going to say, we should do this, Val. I could be the Albot. Have you <laughs> done your words today? <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
Have you done your words today? That is such a Can you imagine? Let's do it. Albot. That's the Albot. Okay. Okay. Just what everyone needs out there. The boot camp yeah. people can have an Albot, Albot in their lives. But, and then with this, you can, um, you can choose because it says, how often do you want me to ask it? Oh. Yeah. Um, you can choose daily, weekly or monthly. You can even choose the time of day. Oh. And you can say, how, if, it then asks, how mean should I be if you Ooh. don't do this? So you have to ask a yes, no question. Have you done your 500 words today or whatever, right? Yeah. So you, and if you, so you answer yes or no. So if you say no, then it can be mean to you. But you can choose not mean or pretty mean or really mean. Oh. So, and does, so just as an example, there is an example on this website that says the, the response is, I hate everything you stand for. <laughs> is that pretty mean or very mean? I'm not sure. Mm. Okay. Um, the the Albot will have its own special selections to choose from. Yeah. Like mm. you, some of the responses can be, oh, you'll get them next time. It's okay. Or you're dead to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure – I don't know if anyone will care if they're dead to me though, Val. So, <laughs> so there's the nagbot, but soon there might be the owlbot. Owlbot, yeah. Can't wait. <laughs> right. so you have yeah. an interesting link for us, don't you, Al? I do, and it's got nothing to do with owlbots no. and everything to do with Facebook groups. Okay. Um, so um, I wanted to talk to – I found this fantastic link link from the BookBub blog, which is a terrific blog if you are looking at marketing a book um, or learning to market a book. Um, and it's called Five Ways to Use Facebook Groups to Build Book Buzz. And um, it talks about different ways that different authors actually has great examples in here of, and including actual posts from authors, the kinds of things that they're putting into their Facebook groups. And it talks about different ways that you can use Facebook groups to um, to help sort of, you know, build the, or promote a book. Um, and a couple of those are that there's one where you can build an author street team. And I know there are a couple of Australian authors that have street teams and a street team will post reviews of your books and or share a specific update date on their own social media accounts. It's a it's a group of very invested readers who want to help to spread the word about your books. Um, or you can have an author fan club. And I know that Kylie Scott, who we interviewed last year, I think last year, fantastic Australian romance author. She has a, a, a Facebook group that's devoted to people who love Kylie Scott's books. Mm -hmm. And they talk about, you know, different things. And they it's a very um, structured little world in there. They, you know, every Monday, there's this post. Every Tuesday, there's that that post on Wednesdays, they talk about this on Thursdays, they talk about that. And it's just a whole group of friends who get together and they don't just talk about Kylie's books, but they're all in there because they love Kylie's books. Right. Um, and it's not, it's, you know, she's not specifically asking them to, to nip out and, and promote her books. It's just a way of gathering together a group of people who are very interested in what she's doing. Um, and the reason I bring it up is because I think that 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 sort of corralling of a community, of bringing a community together around you can be such a valuable uh, tool for an author who's building a platform because you know that those people are in there because they want to hear what you have to say. It's not like um, just the general Facebook, you know, people follow you. They don't necessarily always see what you what you put on Facebook because of Facebook's algorithms. Yeah. However, if they are in your group, they get a notification in their little groups thing to say that there's a new post. So if they're interested in the group, then chances are they're going to come on in there to see what it is that you're saying and we'll mm -hmm. see what you're doing. Um, so, yeah. So I just wanted to, to bring 
you know, to to the forefront of people's minds who are building author platforms, that a Facebook group can be a great um a great tool for what you're trying to do. Um, now, I have a Facebook group. My Facebook group is called Your Kids Next Read. Mm. It is based around children's books, not just my books, but it's based around people who are looking for great reads for their kids. And so it's an interesting group in, to run in many ways because self-promotion is not allowed. So I can't just like lob in there and go, hey, I'm fantastic, come vote for me or yeah. ALT. Or <laughs> ALT. ALT. <laughs> Or, you know, my book is out today or anything like that. It's not that kind of book. What it is, it's it's devoted to I'm trying to create conversation around kids' books and I'm trying to bring together it's got a, it's a fantastic group. It's really active. Yeah. Everybody's really engaged. Lots of parents are in there going, I've got an eleven year old and he's read everything under the sun up to this point and what can he read next? And we get a lot of that stuff. Now by being part of that group and by managing that group, I'm putting myself in front of all of those people all of the time and they yes. know my name and when they see my name, they know who I am, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I have to say that, you know, we promote, uh, there's, there are other Australian authors in there. I promote their books. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm just really interested. The Australian children's book industry interests me obviously because yes. I'm part of it and I want to help to promote that as well. So by promoting the industry, I sort of like as an aside promote myself. So that's a way to use a Facebook group as well. Um, I, of course, had the Pink Fibro Book Club, yep. which was an adult book club. And again, it was based on promoting, you know, other authors, but it's also bringing together a community of readers. And I yep. think that um, those things, uh, you know, I, I ju- it's just always worth thinking a little bit laterally about what it is that you're doing to create your to create your platform. And the other thing I would say to you is, as an author, it's a fantastic thing to get involved in these groups. You don't yeah. have to your own, but find other groups that you can be part of um, with the proviso that you follow the group rules. Now, my mm. group has a very specific rule about self-promotion. We don't encourage it. We encourage authors to be part of the group, to talk about the industry, to talk about, you know, to, to make suggestions because, of course, children's authors are reading a lot of children's fiction. So we know what's out there. We know what's coming, um, which is fantastic. But, you know, you get two chances I do give two. I think I'm being, you know, it's not like an Albot thing where you're dead to me the minute <laughs> you actually promote. But if you promote, I, I delete the first one and if you do it again, I block you from the group because yeah. it's really important that people feel like they're there for a reason. They want to talk about kids' books. They don't necessarily want to be sold to. And I think it's really important that you, if you join a group, read the rules and, and play by the rules. It's, it's yeah. you know, that's the way to get the best value out of anything. That's right. And if you do want to promote your book, start your uh, your own group with your own rules. <laughs> yeah, feel free. Absolutely. And that's that's my point. If you want to promote your books, you go create your own your own communities. <laughs> feel free. But I think that Facebook groups are definitely a good idea. I know that I belong to quite a number of Facebook groups and admittedly some of them are very um, inactive, almost to the point of dormant, but some of them are really active and I get a lot out of them. So, yeah. And you do get to know the other people in the group, which is the whole point, isn't it? So this is an integral part and, in very, and a very um, useful and interesting part of building your author platform. And of course, if you're interested in building your author platform, 
platform, particularly if you're a fiction author, then make sure that you check out Alison's course called How to Build Your Author Platform because it is literally a step-by-step guide on everything you need to do to build your author platform. But whatever you do, don't wait until your book is written. No. Make sure you do it while you are writing your book, even if you don't even know when your book is going to get published because trust me, your book will have far more chance of success if you start building your author platform while you are writing it. And that's all explained in the course. And of course, you can check that out at uh, writerscenter.com.au slash platform. That's writerscenter.com.au slash platform. All right. Now let's move on. We're almost at the end of this week's we episode, are. Al. What, I know. What, what, we're, just, you... we're rolling into we the are. end of it and we're still talking. It's just <laughs> incredible. Well, we have an interesting episode coming up now. <gasps> we won't reveal all. We'll let it appear in your um, iTunes or whatever podcast player you use and it should appear quite soon. But, mm. um, yeah, that's just a little bit of a vague hint there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but keep your eye out for it. So um, until then, where do we find you online, Al? You will find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com, and you will find me on Facebook and Instagram as Alison Tate Writer and over on Twitter at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T, not Al Bot, Al Tate. <laughs> A-L Tate. Yes. And you'll you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram uh, at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, and uh, just search for Valerie Koo uh, in Sydney on Facebook and feel free to connect with me there on Facebook. And, um, yeah, we look forward to chatting to you again very soon. Do connect with us. We'd love to hear from you and we'll talk to you in the next episode. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentercomau slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.